Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is guitarist extraordinaire, the one and only Mike Campbell. Mike, good to have you on the program. Thank you. Good morning. (laughs) And uh, is it true you only started playing guitar at age 16? That is true. Yeah, I couldn't afford one until then. Well... You know, we're about a similar age, and I remember the folk scene and then the Beatles, everybody picking up Mm. guitars. Were you anxious to play then? Was it really money? What inspired you to finally pick up a guitar? Well, it was the 60s, you know, and the Beatles, of course, uh, had a huge impact on me. And I would have been 14 when they hit the Ed Sullivan show, and I got pretty excited then. Up until then, uh, I was just hearing my dad's records, which were Johnny Cash and Elvis records, and I liked the guitar. But when I saw, you know, the Beatles, it was like, I got to have one of those, you know. It took a couple of years to save up 15 bucks to get a little cheap guitar, but that's when the fire was lit. So what was your first guitar? It was a Harmony acoustic that my mom got me at a pawn shop, and we were pretty hard up for cash. But she had $15, and it was unplayable. You know, the strings were so far off the the fretboard, but I didn't know any better. I thought that's just the way it was. And I just remember thinking, boy, these guys are strong. You know, (laughs) And so I learned to play on that thing until my fingers would bleed, actually. And uh, until I saw a friend with a Gibson one day, and then I realized, oh, my God, it's easy. (laughs) Yeah, but that was my first in a Harmony Acoustic F-hole guitar. So how long after that did you get your second guitar, and what was that? Well, my second guitar, my dad was in the Air Force. He was uh, over in Okinawa, and I kept begging him for an electric guitar. And he got together 60 bucks and sent me an electric uh, Goya tone, I think it was called, a Japanese thing. It looks kind of like a Strat a little bit. And I learned to play on that, and I was playing on that when I met Tom years, a few years later. Okay, so how'd you teach yourself to play guitar? Did you take lessons, or what'd you do? No, I kind of, I got a book that showed you how to make the chords, a Mel Bay chord book. Like oh, yeah. Else said. 
and uh, I would listen to the records and just, you know, look at the chords and taught myself by ear, you know. And back then, all you had was records. But if it was an album, you could slow it down to 16 IPS to really hear the, what the guitar was doing at half speed. And I did that a little bit to figure out stuff. But I was just obsessed, you know. I was possessed to, to figure this thing out. And uh, I did not have any lessons. Although, early in my life, uh, when I was in uh, elementary school, I did take accordion lessons. My parents forced me. So I, excuse me, I had a little bit of music basic theory, you know, in my back pocket, you know, uh, but the guitar was all self-taught. How long did you take the accordion lessons for? I don't know, maybe until Little League season started, <laughs> about a couple of months, maybe, I don't know. Okay, so were you a good athlete? No, I loved it. I mean, I was a Sandlot, Sandlot star, you know, I would get out of school. I couldn't make the school teams, I wasn't good enough. But I just loved to get together with my buddies and play in the in the park at the in the neighborhood there. And uh, but once I started playing guitar, that all just disappeared. I didn't care about anything else. So, did you find it came easily, or did you have to work really hard? Both. Uh, a lot of it came easy. I had an instinct for it, but I worked really hard. Like I said, you know, I'm I'm not making a joke. I would play that thing, and my fingers would start bleeding. And I'd have to stop, you know, until it scabbed over. And I'm done for the day. You know, there's blood, you know. But I just wanted to learn so bad. I think if you have a, a desire, you know, you'll find a way to, to figure out what you want to do. And at what point did you start to play with other people? Well, uh, a year or so into it, I met a buddy who played acoustic guitar. And he turned me on to Bob Dylan. And uh, he taught me one of my first songs on the acoustic guitar, which was uh, off a of Bob Dylan record. It was called Baby Let Me Follow You Down. He showed me that. And then uh, I had a couple of friends here and there. We'd sit in the garage and play. But nothing really uh, crystallized until I got to Gainesville, Florida and got in, a, in my own little band. Okay, so where exactly did you grow up? Jacksonville, Orlando and Jacksonville. And your father was in the Air Force. Were your parents still together? They were together until I was 15. And it was a pretty uh, unhappy divorce. And the money was really tight. Uh, but um, that's when uh, we moved to Jacksonville because my, all my, my mom's folks lived there. So after the divorce, she wanted to be near her family. So we moved up there and I went to school there and uh, eventually ended up back in Gainesville uh, for college. So, what was it like being 15 years old and having your parents have an acrimonious divorce? You know, I think it scarred me pretty good, but it made <laughs> me tough, you know. I mean, it was, you know, I don't want to get deep into the psychology of it, but it, it hurt bad, you know. I, you know, that was my whole life. Like, I kept thinking, well, like, can't you just stick together for me? <laughs> but, you know, and I'm, I'm older now, I understand how things happen, but it, uh, it did a number on me, and, um, uh, I've worked on that over my life to uh, resolve those issues. Uh, and uh, I think it kind of gave me a, an intention to never do that to my children because it was pretty pretty rough. You know, I kind of felt worthless. I guess most kids that are from come from a divorce get that feeling of like, God, you know. And back then, you know, being from a divorced family was kind of uh, uh, a shameful thing to be kind of. You know, you weren't anything you were proud of nowadays. People probably don't think about it that much, but it was kind of a heavy, traumatic thing back then. You're absolutely right. I remember it was really rare 
in the uh, mid and late 60s. So uh, you say you worked to resolve the trauma. How did you do that? Well, for a while, I went to this therapist, uh, this lady who was really great at helping me work through some all kinds of stuff I was going through, uh, you know, being in a rock and roll band and my marriage. And we eventually got into my childhood. And uh, she helped me see it from a different perspective and kind of um, mend those fences in my head and make me a little more at peace with it. Uh, and of course, my wife, you know, she's I've been with my wife for 46 years and she was very supportive of helping me through whatever, you know, issues I might be going through and vice versa. So how old were you when you got married? I was 26 or uh, 20, 25. And then our first child was born. And when I was 26. And was that something you were inspired to do or was your wife pregnant or, you know, you're a rock and roll musician. A lot of people love to live the free and easy lifestyle. Well, uh, that's a good question. Um, at that point in my life, I was not looking to get married per se, but I wasn't uh, repelled by the idea like I had been a few years earlier. I mean, back in Florida, I sowed a lot of roots, you know, a young musician. And by the time I got out and started making, you know, at the time uh, I got married, she was making more money than I was. You know, we were on a deal with Shelter Records that wasn't really bringing in much dough. And she was a grocery checker, so she was actually paying the bills. And, um, you know, we just kind of connected. And fortunately, we connected before I was a, you know, celebrity or star or whatever. I was just Mike. And we have that that special bond I don't think I'd ever find again because you know there's a different perspective of who and what I am now so that was that was really good for us and for me um I, I don't know if I answered your question or not um I well lost. what inspired you actually to tie the knot oh well yeah she she said you know guess what <laughs> I think we're gonna I think we're gonna be having a baby and what was interesting is that if I'd have heard that two years prior I probably would have freaked out oh my god nothing no way you know but I kind of sat with it and I thought, you know what, I think I'm I think I'm kind of okay with this at this point in my life. My head is kind of open to that idea. And uh, one thing just flowed into another. Of course, this begs the question of not long thereafter, uh, Petty and the Heartbreakers start to get traction. Yeah. Did, and, there, and all of a sudden you have that fame that you did not have previously. And what about all the temptations of the road? Well, you know, that was really hard on my wife. God bless her. Um, here's a, a new baby shows up and then I'm off on tour and the band starts to happen and I be, become, you know, successful uh, more than we had planned on that quickly. And it was just very fortunate. And, uh, you know, we would try to stay in sync with each other while I was on the road. She was home with a baby and it was a struggle. You know, it was a struggle. But uh, I love her and um, I would... Uh, always put her and, and my family first, you know, and the other stuff, I think a lot of that other partying and young guy stuff, I had already kind of gotten a lot of it out of my system. Uh, uh, and so it wasn't uh, that hard for me to, uh, to be a good guy. <laughs> so what's the key to having a 46 year long marriage? Don't get divorced. Okay, I mean, I, as someone who's been divorced, I know exactly what you're talking about, but that usually implies there's some heavy moments where the road could go another way where you would get divorced. Of course, of course. Well, I, I borrowed that line from Olivia Harrison. Somebody asked her once, like, how do you, how do you keep your marriage together? She goes, don't, it, 
don't get divorced. But as a, it's a you know a short little comment. But underneath that comment, you are going to hit bumps in the road. It's inevitable. And you can get divorced, you can split and go down different paths, or you can sit in there and really look at, well, what do I, what's really important here? You know, is this something we can work out together or is it a deal breaker? You know, and uh, of course, in my lifestyle and being separated uh, on tour and her at home with the babies and coming home and having to get to know each other again and stuff like that, it was hard. And it breaks most marriages up, you know, and I can see why. And I'm just lucky that mine held together. And I think the reason is because, uh, first of all, she's very understanding and very patient and was willing to accept her part of the dynamic, you know. And I was willing to meet her on the, at the table and go, well, you know, like, this is what happened. Uh, how do you really feel about it? You know, do you want to carry on together or is this, are we done? And every time we hit a snag, it was always like, I think we can get over this because the love is stronger than this. So, is she the product of divorce, or did her parents stay together? No, her parents stayed together. Uh, um, they live into their nineties. Uh, so no, she uh, she's a California girl. Went to Fairfax High School, you know, and I, I found my California girl. And um, no, she didn't have that trauma. She had other, you know, everybody has their own personal issues with their parents. She had her own issues, but uh, basically, they were relatively stable, you know. They stayed together and they, well, they they put up with each other, you know. They weren't always, you know, a walk in the park together either. But, um, you know. Well, to keep a marriage together, how much of it do you think was her strength or your strength or both of you were very strong wanting to keep it going? Both. But I, I think especially her because I, I, I really, you know, when I think back on it, being home, if it had been the other way around, if I'd have been home taking care of a baby and she was out partying, being a rock star and having all this stuff happen and going to different cities and countries and all the, uh, you know, experiences that might, you know, be going, she might be having without me, it probably would have been really hard on me. You know, and I, I give her a lot of credit for, for being strong and uh, standing by me, you know. And, um, and I give myself some credit too for not getting, you know, distracted by the the uh, the trappings of of rock star life you know it's it's really pretty shallow you know if you're going to go down that road and be a partier and and stuff eventually you know it's it's not very fulfilling and how many kids do you have i have three and i also now have three grandchildren that are about almost the same age two twins and uh my son has a son and they're the joy of our life you know they're beautiful and what are they up to? Well, they're almost five, so they're not up to nothing much except, you know, drawing and playing and getting into trouble. But, but they're, they're, uh, they're huh? parents, your three kids. Oh, they're. Uh, well, my, my daughter had the twins. Her, hus her husband has a great job as a contractor. My other daughter is living alone, um, and she has a dog in her own place. And my son is married and has a child, and he's a dog trainer. He has a dog training business. So they're all uh, maintaining, and they're basically pretty happy. So you're from Florida, and you met your wife before your success in California. How'd you meet her? Oh, uh, that's a great story. I don't know if you want to hear it. But no, it's tell it. Romantic. Yeah, I love telling the story. We met on Halloween, and uh, the story goes: um, 
I was living in a house. The, the band Mudcrutch was struggling with a record deal and everything was falling apart. I was living in a house with, out in Canoga Park with a couple of the other guys and they were going to go to a party. I didn't want to go, you know. And I was living in a bedroom with a mattress on the floor. I didn't have much going for me. But I did have a little car. But uh, they were going, oh, come on. There'll be some girls there, you know. Da, da, da. So they drug me along. And of course, we got there. There was one girl and eight guys. <laughs> <laughs> A typical, you know, all I'm taking, you know, uh, quaaludes or whatever the day uh, party was. And I'm sitting there and uh, Marcy, my wife, shows up with her dog and she was best friends with the girl, Marcia, who was there. And so she, I saw her walk in. I was sitting in the other room and, and her dog came over to me and connected with me. <laughs> you know, I'm just sitting like this dog was just like we had a bond going on. I was talking to the dog and petting the dog. She, she walked by and said, is this your dog? And then we started talking and had a great conversation and kind of headed off. And at the end of the night, uh, I split. I didn't ask her for her number. She didn't ask me for mine. I split. And then uh, the next day, I thought, God, you know, that girl is really nice. I have no way to get a hold of her. And I thought, I wonder if I can find that apartment. You know, and it was, it was it, I had only been there in the middle of the night. So I got in my car, drove over to where I thought it was. It was on the second story I remembered. And Somehow I found their apartment and I knocked on the door and her friend, Marcia, opened the door. She was on the phone and I was about to say, uh, do you know how to get a hold of? And she handed me the phone <laughs> <laughs> and Marcy was on the phone to her asking her about me. You know, the guy never even asked me for my number. I don't know who he is or how to get a hold of him. So it was kind of like a serendipitous moment, you know, and uh and so we and we we now you know dogs are a major part of our life. She had a dog rescue uh, business for a while, and we have lots of dogs. So we were kind of brought together by uh, by the dog, and and the rest is history. You know. And okay, growing up, how many kids in the family? In my family, yes, I had a, a brother and a sister. And where where are you in the hierarchy? I'm the oldest. Is so how many years between all of you? Five. Five years apart. Five years apart to the youngest. Yeah. Well, no, uh, uh, I was born. My sister was born five years later. My son was born five years later. I mean, my brother was born five years later. Wow. So we're spread That's over time. Yeah. Right. So you're growing up. What kind of kid are you? Good student, bad student, loner, popular? I was introverted. I was a pretty good student. Uh, I only had a couple of friends. And, uh, you know, I had friends, like I said, I used to play sandlot ball when I was younger. But once I got the guitar, it was me and the guitar, you know, and, and the bedroom. That was pretty much my social life. And I was really shy. I didn't really, but I noticed as I played the guitar and got a little bit good that people were drawn to me. You know, like girls would come up and talk to me or guys would come up and they were, and my dad told me once, if you learned how to play an instrument, you'll always have friends. And I didn't know what he meant, but he was right. And so the guitar kind of brought people to me and brought gave me confidence to be a little more talkative. And that's kind of what I was like, kind of quiet and, uh, you know, kept to myself a lot. So you go to Gainesville for college. How long do you stay in college? Do you graduate? I did not graduate. I went about a year and a half. And then uh, I jumped into Tom's band and uh, let my tuition run out and got a guitar and never looked back. So... Unfortunately, it was just a couple of nights before Tom passed, but he was on stage in the Hollywood Bowl 
telling a long story of how you actually met with a lot of humor. Yeah. yeah. How did you? How, how did you actually meet? That is true. That whole story is true. You know, he he embellished it with the humor, but it is exactly true. I was in the back room of this house I was renting with uh, the Mudcrutch drummer, and I had seen Tom play with this band. Mudcrutch was kind of like a Burrito Brothers country rock group at the college. I'd seen them, and I thought, oh, they're pretty good. It wasn't, uh, I was more into blues and rock at the time, but I saw uh, on the bulletin board, I saw they were looking for a drummer. And so I told my friend, my roommate said, you know, this band's looking for a drummer. You should call them. True story. They came out to the house to audition the drummer. They said, oh, our guitar player just quit. Do you know somebody? I was in the back room with my little Japanese Goya guitar and I came out and they just like, oh God, not this guy. He can't be cool. <laughs> I had short hair. <laughs> And cutoffs and this shitty little Japanese guitar. And uh, you could just see the looks on their faces like, oh, how do we get away from this guy? And I said, okay, well, what do we play? And I said, well, I know Johnny B. Good. So we played Johnny B. Good. And that was it. Their their faces changed completely. That's just like Tom tells a story. It was like, as soon as they heard me play, like, you're going to be in my band forever. And I was. Yeah, which is how he told the story. So just to go back. Prior to meeting Tom, to what degree were you playing with other people and did you play out for money? Didn't play for much money, but I did have a little group, a three-piece group, and we would play for free at the college. And it was mostly blues and improvisation type playing and jamming. And uh, so I was getting really in love with being, the feeling of being in a band and playing in front of people. Um, and then the Tom and, the, and Mudcrutch, we, we started getting little gigs like at the Topless Bar, the Women's Club, or at the college. You know, we'd pay, you know, 150 bucks or whatever for the whole band. And um, then we got a gig at Dub's uh, Topless Bar, which happened to be just up the street from my farmhouse. I could actually walk there. So we, we played there for a couple of months, like, you know, four sets a night. And we got like 100 bucks a piece a week, which was like a fortune for us. And that's when I really, uh, that's when we really became a band and learned how to play live, you know, hours and hours at this uh, topless bar. And uh, it grew from there. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you say you were more into blues and rock. This is the late 60s. What kind of acts, what were you into? Well, I was really enthralled. Of course, I loved the Beatles and Stones as, as much as anybody. But I wasn't into the California country rock scene so much as Tom was. But I learned to appreciate that. But I was listening to like Paul Butterfield and Mike Bloomfield records. And uh, at the time, I liked Jerry Garcia quite a bit. Um, but I liked the English guys a lot. You know, George Harrison, Keith Richards, and the Kinks, the Animals. There were so many great bands with good guitar players. And I was enthralled with all that stuff. But when I... When I was playing, my first band I got together, I wasn't really singing much at all. And we didn't know any songs, so we would just start, start, you know, a 12 bar, and then it would just go on for five, five six minutes, you know. So we were just kind of jamming mostly. But Tom, what was cool about his band is they were doing songs with harmonies, like three-minute songs with the chorus and verses. And I liked that. I was drawn to that. Like, yes, that's what I'd really like to do. And I, I hadn't really explored that part of uh, being in a band until then. So let's just stop for a second. In your opinion, and it's obviously an opinion, who's the best rock guitarist? Boy, that's a loaded question. Uh, wow. Well, the best. The most original and out of this world would be Jimi Hendrix. Uh, does that make him the best? I don't know. I, I really like Mike Bloomfield's playing. I like Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck. I mean, you know, it's hard to pick one. There were so many greats back then, but Jimi Hendrix kind of was head and shoulders unique above everybody else. He was taking the guitar places, and but he was still good. You know, he wasn't just crazy, but he was able to really go into places and get sounds and, and feelings out of the guitar that weren't your standard guitar approach, you know. And he really was pretty untouchable. So let's go back to the band. When you join Mud Crutch, is Tom already writing original material? Yeah, that's what kind of bonded us. Is uh, after we had, you know, played a little bit, we sat, started talking, and uh, I think he had showed us one song that he was writing, and he, I said, I'm writing. I'm trying to write some songs too. And he said, Really? And he said, Yeah. I said, Yeah, I got this thing. I didn't have any many words, but it was. I said, It's kind of like a Roger McGuinn type song and he goes oh i like roger mcguinn and so we immediately picked up that each other was trying to 
to compose our own music. And he was a, a little bit more advanced than I was at that time. He'd already been writing songs, completed songs. I was still putting like little pieces together. But uh, we had that bond right away, you know, of writing our own stuff. And you drop out of college. Do you ever have a straight gig? No. I mean, in, in high school, I worked at a burger joint, you know, uh, greasy spoon, mopping the floor mostly. At the university, I got a temporary job like shelving books, old dusty books that were in a room. It was really a boring job. But no, I never really had a proper job uh, to speak of. No. That's great. So, okay, you're playing the topless bar. What's the next step after that? Well, the next step out of that is is to uh, get away from the perverts and try to play a little more nicer places. Like at the university, you could get gigs uh, playing in the park, and you know a bunch of hippies would show up with frisbees, and you could play. Uh, they put up a stage, or you could play the women's clubs. You could play the women's club uh, for a couple of hundred bucks. Uh, you know, some bars here and there, and sometimes we drive to Tampa or Orlando and play, you know, like like a, a, a youth center or something. Just stuff like that. Anything to get away from the CD bars. And then we begin to realize that, you know, because also the thing with those gigs, you could play your own songs. And, and the bars, you kind of had to play the top 40 stuff. But in our on the other gigs, we could explore our own writing, you know. And so we liked that approach. And we just realized pretty soon that, you know, this is the direction to go. And we're going to have to, you know, make a tape and get a try to give a record deal and move somewhere else where the records are happening and over time we ended up in la you know so how long between the time you meet tom and you end up in la uh three two or three years and at that point how often is the band rehearsing how often is the band playing oh we used to play all the time and rehearse all the time in my bedroom or whatever in gainesville we'd we, you know we just play and as soon as we got a gig we tote the stuff out and towed it back. We didn't have roadies. Uh, but, uh, you know, we were playing as much as we could, you know. And if we didn't have a gig, we'd just get together and rehearse and, and try to learn new songs or just play for fun. And at what point do you replace the Goya? Well, um, that's an interesting story. I wanted to, we had gone up, we got a gig in Birmingham, Alabama, for some reason. Oh, opening for Mitch Ryder in the Detroit Wheels, oh. if you can believe that. <laughs> Uh, so we drive up there and we went to a pawn shop and uh, we said, do you have any guitars? And she said, well, there's one, but you wouldn't want it. So immediately the light bulbs go on. Yeah, what is it? You know, she brings out this Gibson Firebird, a red Firebird. And it was 120 bucks. You know, now it would be worth, you know, 40 grand. But I got that and that was my guitar for quite a while. And then later on, I had seen a Stratocaster at the music store, which was 200 bucks, a 64 Strat if you can believe that. And uh, I didn't have the money, but a friend of a friend had just had an insurance uh, automobile uh, settlement and she had some cash. She said, well, here, I'll, I'll, I'll loan you the money and you can buy the Stratocaster. So then I had the Gibson and the Strat and those were my two guitars for quite a while. And what about an amp? I had a Fender. I got together enough to get a Fender Twin. Okay. And back then you could get these things called Electro Voice speakers and put them in. And they had a lifetime guarantee. If you blew it up, you could just take it to the store and they'd put a new one in for you. <laughs> so that's the one I had. You well, know. How often did you blow it up? Oh, every couple of months. I don't know. 
three or four months, one of them would go on the fritz and just take it in and have them pop a new one in. Pretty cool. Okay, so how many guitars do you own today? It's sick. Too many. But I love them all. In fact, I just sold about 100 of them uh, for an auction. And uh, I've now got my guitars in a, in a nice display where I can see them all and I can get to them. I've got a lot of my stuff is on this carousel that I built in my rehearsal room. It goes up electronically and it's got hooks and there's all my nicest guitars up there. I push a button, it goes, it comes down and I can pick what I want. But I've got a lot. You know, I've been collecting forever and I, I love them and I use every one of them. You know, every one of them has been on the road or in the, on a record. And I've kind of stopped buying now because I kind of got one of everything I wanted. And, uh, which is funny because back in the day when I couldn't afford one, I'd see the who and I'd get so pissed off, you know, <laughs> don't, don't break that. Send it to me. You know, don't, that's a good guitar. You're just going to break the neck off of it. Used to, used to kill me. But, you know, now I, I treasure my instruments and, uh, they, uh, they're good investments. So it worked out. How'd you decide to part with a hundred and how hard was that? It wasn't hard at all. I had too many and I, I couldn't remember keep track of them all and they were all in cases and stored away and so i finally just got them all out and i just picked the ones that i don't didn't use all the time and auctioned them out and got quite a bit of money for them all but i still have plenty left you know i don't know over a hundred but they're all vintage you know choice choice instruments so if you could only save two what would they be well one would be my broadcaster fender broadcaster which i used on the first album and I guess my other one would be the 59 Les Paul, which I only got about 10 years ago. And I used in the last several Heartbreakers records. Those two are kind of irreplaceable. Okay. Broadcaster has one pickup. Telecaster has two. No, Broadcaster has two pickups. The Esquire has one. That, oh, you're right. That's what I'm saying. I'm screwing up. Of course I'm right. I'm a guitar player. Right. Well, I thought I, you know, you know, my brain didn't go back uh, enough time to you remember. corrected. Absolutely. <laughs> So, tell me about moving to California. How does that all go down? Well, it's a, we made a movie about it, uh, Running Down a Dream. It went down that we made a demo tape and sent it around, got mostly rejected, and got a little bit of interest from this company called Shelter Records, which was Leon Russell and Denny Cordell's label. So, we piled everything and pooled all our money and got Benmont's parents' station wagon, and we rented a truck. And piled everything in and drove out like the Beverly Hillbillies, <laughs> you know, and wound up in Hollywood like, you know, rednecks from space. We were totally out of, out of sync with everything, but we had to learn, you know, and we, we just buckled down and, you know, stumbled around the studio for a while. Mudcrutch dissolved and then slowly we met up with the other guys, formed the Heartbreakers, made our first record and then things started to get better. Wait, a little bit slower though. Didn't you go back to Florida? Well, there was a fir the first foray, or soiree, whatever the word is, out to California. Tom went, went out with the roadie. I stayed home. I gave him my 50 bucks was all I had. And they went out and knocked on doors. And then they came back. And then we started getting the rejection letters. And then we got one that sounded interesting from Denny Cordell. And um, then we all got together and headed out, hoping that he would save our life. You know, <laughs> And he did. So... What was the magic of Denny Cordell? Denny Cordell, first of all, he believed in us and he saw something that we didn't even see, that we had a chemistry and that we were unique and that we had a, you know, some songwriting that was better than most people. He picked up on the songwriting 
and on Tom's uh, charisma and on the chemistry of the band, you know. And he believed in us and he gave us confidence. And he was really good at, because we were so, um, especially in the studio, we were so green. We didn't know what we were doing, how to get a good sound or how to, you know, play it right or this and that. And he was good with saying, well, you know, that's out of these three songs, those two are crap, but this one's good. Write some more songs like this one in that vein. You know, and kind of directing us like a guru down the path toward our pure self. And that was his, his main uh, contribution, is giving us confidence and believing in us and the right advice that we needed. So, how long after you start figuring out the studio do you zero in and you're making a record, or you essentially making a record the whole time? Well, you're always trying to make a record, you know. You go in each time you're going to record something, you think, well, maybe this will be on a record, but of course, most of the time it was just, you know, you have to throw it out and start over. But um, you just, yeah, we're always thinking of this is going to be a record, you know, until it's not. <laughs> okay, and so how long after you start playing around is the record done? Well, once we got the lineup of the Heartbreakers and Tom brought in, he, at the same time that happened, he brought in these great songs. It all just kind of happened at the same time. Uh, it didn't take us that much, you know, a couple of months to record the first record, which we recorded at the office at Shelter Records. They had put a makeshift studio in there. We called it the Brown Room. And uh, we got in there and just, you know, just one, one at a time until we had, you know, 10 or 12 songs. And he brought in like American Girl, Breakdown, all these great songs just came out of the air. He came in with those and we had the band, so it all started to gel. So what are you living on? at this point in time well i'm living on my wife's meager salary as a grocery checker i was on a retainer i think for i don't know 100 bucks maybe a week shelter records was you know not rolling in the dough so they were kind of keeping us alive i look back i don't know how we lived i don't know how we paid our rent and got groceries but for me personally uh my wife was had a steady job and she was you know covering the bases until uh the music started bringing in money and then she you know had a baby and was able to quit her job but we just i don't know we survived you know it was like kind of when i think back on it i don't know how we did it <laughs> we, we we got through somehow so the album comes out certainly gets some ink that people know know that it's out but nothing really happens in the u.s how do you end up going to the uk well we got a meager airplay in san francisco and boston but basically nothing happening and somehow, um, through the record company and the promoters, they, they got us onto a tour with Nils Lofgren in England. I don't know how they did that. But we all went to England to open for Nils Lofgren and around, around the, the country there. And uh, the press over there, for some reason, really loved us. You know? And so we started to get a buzz over there in positive uh, press. And... Uh, that kind of snowballed when we gave us a little momentum when we came back we had a little you know energy underneath us from that tour and we started to get a little more airplay and it was a slow process you know we, we it took us a while we paid some dues for sure well i certainly remember in los angeles they started to play a live version of breakdown and yeah. and you know i remember uh it was a slow burn. I remember seeing you guys at the Whiskey in the summer of 77. It was really starting Ooh, to buzz. you were there? Oh, absolutely. Oh, that was a great gig. <laughs> As that. it was. Uh, so in any event, 
at what point do you decide, okay, we got to make a second record? Well, uh, we always thought we were going to make a second record. It was a matter of, I guess, this one's done all it's going to do. Let's make another one, you know. And back then, the industry was way different than it is now, you know. And back then, you could put out a record or two that maybe don't set the world on fire, but if you go out and tour and start to build up a fan base over time by the third or fourth record, if things go well, your records will start selling because you've built up, you know, a fan base on the road. Nowadays, it's different, but that's what we did, you know. We just go out and get whatever. We opened a lot of uh, shows, like for Jay Giles or Bob Seger or whoever would have us. And we would play, you know, our own shows in the smaller clubs, like kind of like what I'm doing now with my band. And um, and then in between that, we would go in and try to work on the, you know, songs for the second record. And when it was done, we put it out and kept going, you know, book some more gigs. At what point do you hook up with Tony Dimitriotis? He was around uh, early on. Uh, there was a couple of managers that were sniffing around us in the early days, and he was the one that seemed the most honest and trustworthy. And uh, so he was, yeah, he was there for pretty early on. So you make the second album. I mean, the first album I absolutely love with Luna, The Wild One Forever, etc. The second album comes out, it gets more attention. I do not like it as much as the first. That's not saying that I don't like it. But it doesn't quite break through with the expectations. What was your perspective being on the inside? I agree with you. I like that. I still think the first record is one of my favorite records of all our records. The second record was good. It had I Need to Know and uh, Listen to Her Heart. You know, it had some good songs on there. Um, but we're still kind of learning. And so it's just a matter of, you know, more of the same. We got a record, you know couple of songs we're getting a little bit of airplay we'll go out and get some gigs and maybe try to build up some momentum and make another record someday you know and of course by the time we got to the third record we realized you know we got to make a really good record now because this is you know this, we can't go on like this we needed something that's going to break through and that was with the third album was finally we uh, we hit bigger and are you still living on a subsistence level or do you ever see any yeah yeah we're still getting by on you know month to month you know, paying our rent. So how do you end buying groceries? How do you end up hooking up, up with Jimmy Iovine? Well, it was Cordell actually, uh, and his uh, great wisdom. Uh, he said, "You know what? You guys need to to make a record that's more mainstream uh, friendly." And he said, "I don't think I know how to produce that type of record, but you sh I should step aside. We should get you a producer that makes records that sound great on the radio." And so we said, well, like what? And he played us a Patti Smith song, Because the Night, which uh, Jimmy had produced, and it had this huge drum sound, and it, it just sounded great on the radio. So we said, well, can we get that guy? And so he came in, and uh, we started working with him, going for the big sound. <laughs> this is also the point where you get into the war with uh, MCA. What was your perspective on that? Well, you know, we're just uh, scuffling poor boys, you know. The record company kind of shuffled us over to another record company. We're not making any money. And uh, that, you know, we're not going to give them another record because they don't deserve it. So we just won't record. We'll go out and play. We did a lawsuit tour <laughs> that we uh, refused to record for the new, which uh, went from uh, you know, Shelter to, M to ABC and then MCA. 
And they just shuffled us around and didn't ask us. You know, I said, okay, well, we're not going to give you a record. We'll just play live, you know. And then uh, eventually things came around and they renegotiated the deal. And we got Jimmy to produce and uh, get over at MCA. And it was, a, it was just a, <clears throat> I don't know. As bad as it might sound, uh, I'm in L.A. I'm playing in a band. We have records out. I was already successful in my mind. You know, I had no idea what we were going to do. But even though we were struggling and scuffling and getting by, I still felt coming from Gainesville, Florida, that was still pretty high-end stuff for me. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, you work with Jimmy, and obviously Damn the Torpedoes is the huge breakthrough. What is his influence? Well, Jimmy... First of all, he brought his engineer who got that great sound, Sheliakis. And it was really hard work. Uh, I mean, almost totally miserable trying to get a sound, not really knowing what we're doing and learning and, and you know, 
they would work on the snare drum for three days, you know, and then, okay, we got the snare drum sound, let's work on the bass, you know, and two weeks go by, okay, now play the song. Well, I don't even feel like playing the song now, I'm sick of hearing the snare drum. So we had to learn how to, how to get <clears throat> the sound in our head from the room into the what we were hearing out back on the speakers, and Jimmy was good at that, he knew what he was going for. And um, he was driven to make the best sounding record ever made. That was, you know, Jimmy had, and Tom too, this uh, vision of, you know, we're going for greatness. You know, we're not going to settle for anything that's not better than everything else out there. And Jimmy had that drive and that overview. Um, and he pushed us hard, you know, but that record came out and it did really well. So there you go. So were all those songs written before you got into the studio with Jimmy? Uh, were songs rejected? How did you end up with those songs? Well, we had a handful of songs. We had Refugee and Here Comes My Girl, which I had written with Tom. Okay, just stay, stop there for a second. That change in Here Comes My Girl, where it goes down and goes, watch her walk. How did that come? Yeah. How did that come together? That's something, it's indelible. I tingle when well, I talk a, about it. They called it a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very, you know, it's just a matter of, You know, and then you go, where do I go from there? Well, how about take it to another mood for a second and then back. It was just a little interlude to give those chords a break. And that's what a good bridge should do that. It should just like bridge you from that chorus into the next verse without distracting from the flow. It was just a chord, really. It went down from A to F sharp. And it's just something I came up with on my demo so anyway we had those two songs and some other songs uh don't do me like that was in there but we were we'd already tried that a few times with our first two albums and we were off of it and maybe a louisiana rain we might have had that song but jimmy Iovine, he heard refugee and here comes my girl and he said i don't care what else you guys do that's the i we got a record those two songs i don't even want to hear the rest of it. you do whatever you want we're going to make a hit out of those two songs and he goes i never listened to side two of any record in my whole life <laughs> You know, that's the kind of guy Jimmy was. You know, he he wanted the business. He wanted it now. And he heard the business on those two songs. Okay, we're going to make those. You guys make the rest of the record, whatever you want. You know, so, which is really kind of hilarious. But uh, Don't Do Me Like That, we did pull out at the last second. We had cut it and put it away. And then we heard it. So, well, that is pretty good. We should finish it. And so that came out on that record as well. And Louisiana Rain, a few other rockers. And uh, But really, it was it, Refugee and Here Comes My Girl kind of carried the weight on that. So how did you and uh, Tom write Refugee? And even the Losers. Even the of Losers. Of course. On there. How did you... And that's my wife. That's my wife at the beginning. It's just a normal noise. Oh, really? Okay. That's my wife, Marcy, yeah. When I did the demo at my house on my four track, she was in the other room, and the washing machine was going, chicka, chicka, chicka. I said, what is that? She goes, it's just a normal noise in here. And so it, was, it, it bled into my demo. So when Tom heard it, he says, we have to use that... that Bit. And Jimmy thought he was nuts. He said, what's that got to do with the record? He said, no, but we needed it because the two songs were in the same key. So that kind of distracted your mind from what key you were in. And so she became on the record. It was funny. Uh, that is, I never knew. Th a little aside. I never knew that story. So how do you write Refugee, which is really the big monster breakthrough? You know, how do you write it? I don't know, man. It's, 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 it's magic and luck and work. You know, I was just, I had my four track, which once again, my wife talked me into buying the four track. We could, it was a T-Act, you know, we couldn't afford it. 
But she said, no, you should buy that. You know, and it'll pay off. And she was right. God bless her. She always believed in me. But anyway, I had my four track and I was playing around with it, you know, and trying to think of, well, let me put some chords on here so I could play lead guitar along with it and practice my leads. It was those chords that I borrowed from an Albert Keane song and changed around a little bit. And I just threw a little demo together, uh, not you know, mostly for an excuse to practice lead guitar. And uh, then Tom heard it, and of course he hit that that lyric, and you know, forget about it. You know, he made it like eighteen times better, and uh, it became this iconic song. I mean, it's just luck, man. I you know, I think about that all the time. Where do these songs come from? Why me? Where did it? You know, how can why can't I just conjure it up every day? I don't know. It's magic. It's luck. It's spiritual. It's just, I think, and it's just a lot of just keeping your head, your nose to the nose to the grindstone, just working, 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 and then hoping that some miracle will happen in the middle of it all. You know. So when you wrote with Tom, is that generally the way it would go down? You would do something independently, deliver to him. He'd write the lyrics. Yeah, always. We never sat down eyeball to eyeball. It seemed to always seem so intimidating. Like, what do you got? I don't know. What do you got? You know. So I would just come in with, well, here's an idea. I'd play the tape. You know, how about this? You know, and he would, if he liked it, he would just start, you know, I guess singing along in his, he'd go off, take it off to his house and come back to me and say, I think I got some words for that music. And that's the way it always worked. It was a great relationship. Did you ever add words? Did he ever change the music? Occasionally. Like those two songs, uh, Refugee and Here Comes My Girl, most of the songs, the music was intact. Occasionally he would come in and go, you know, I've got this this lyric going and I need a different chord here to, to carry through with what you've already got. He might add a chord. Uh, very rarely would I suggest a lyric. Maybe later on I, I had a few lyric suggestions, but I almost always left the lyrics up to him. And I would say like 85% of the time, the demos were exactly the way I handed them to him. Okay. This begs a question of publishing. These are gi mm -hmm. gigantic songs. How much of the publishing did you own then, do you own now? 50-50. We always split everything 50-50. Okay, so he had 50, you had 50, and you owned it together, or there was another party that had another 50? No, we owned it together. I mean, until late recently, uh, I don't know what his estate has done with his publishing, but nowadays you can sell your publishing to a third party if you want to get all the cash that you're going to make over the next few years up front if you want it. But uh, we never did that. He had Gone Gator music. I had Wild Gator music. And we kept our, all our publishing, you know. We didn't want to sell it. So it was just a, you know, a two-way partnership. Okay, but from the very first record, you and Tom owned 100%? Yeah. That's kind of rare. And this Yeah, well, well, we learned, see, we had learned the hard way on those first two records where we got shuffled around by the company. That's what that lawsuit was all about. It's like, you know, you're not going to take our music. You're not going to take our publishing. Like even Cordell, in our first deal, he wrote in a piece of the publishing for himself, which we didn't know any better. But by the third record, we were smart. You know, like, no, we're keeping our songs, you know. And you can have the artist, you know, a piece of the artist's record royalties, but the, the, the songs belong to us. And that's mostly Tom. Tom was a very astute businessman. And did you ever get the pieces back from the first two records? We did. We did eventually buy them back. Uh, I forget, probably 20 years ago or something, it became available and we bought them back. So we own it all now. And what, what about you selling it to Hypnosis or Primary Wave or something? Well, I'll have to be really hard up for cash to do that. Um, 
I think I recently did a. I says my wife is the businesswoman in the in the partnership. I I think we did a a temporary deal where we we wanted to buy some property, and we did like a okay. Well, you give us an advance for you know I think it was four years or something, and then after the four years we get all the publishing back. A little temporary cash jump thing. But uh, I don't want to give up my songs, you know. I really don't. And unless I'm really destitute or the kids need medical treatment or something, I would never sell the songs or my part of them. Okay, the record is done. Do you think it's going to be mega successful? Do you think Refugees an instant hit? What's your perspective? We had no idea. I mean, Jimmy thought it was. And see, the, the thing that Jimmy did, more than just producing, he went out and promoted the, the record when it was done. You know, he would take the tapes and fly to New York and go to the radio station and said, play this, play this. This is the best thing ever done. He was a real promoter. You know, he went out and pushed that record and got it played a lot. But did we, did we know? I mean, here we made another record, you know. Hopefully it'll do well. I mean, I think it's pretty good. But, you know, until people start buying it and, you, and you, then you begin to realize like, wow, this connected with some people. But you don't really know. We didn't. Well, certainly in Los Angeles, Refugee hits the radio instantly. So at what point did you realize, holy fuck, this is really happening? Well, yeah, there was, a, there was kind of a moment there uh, when the first uh, publishing check came in. I remember looking at it and going like, with my wife going like, honey, I think our ship just came in. You know, Let's go buy a Mercedes. <laughs> then I went to the accountant and had the, the meeting. Yeah, that was your gross. And then he pushed me a piece of paper. Here's your money after taxes. And I was like, ah, no. This can't be true. I finally made it, and you're taking more than half of it back. Oh. It was a you know a lesson in life. So, what was the whole "damn the torpedoes" experience like? Being at the pinnacle of the music business. Well, you know what it's like. Uh, it's like the first time. You know, it. We were riding a. It's it's so heady, and your dream it all starts to happen. It's like. It's so intense and wonderful and spiritual that you can hardly, the um, uh, only way we could deal with it is just like, okay, that's good, that's happening. Wow, it's going to happen and everything's going to be cool. Let's focus, you know, stay focused on the, on the work because otherwise you just get lost in, in the glory of your success, you know. It was pretty heady and uh, it was, um, you know, it's like the first time, like the first time you ever have sex. You know, it's never quite as good as that first time. And you know, we've had hit records since then. But when, it, when you first break through, it's like, wow, we did it. We're going to be, we're going to, this is going to be big. Imagine that. How'd that happen? And it's like, you never, you only get that feeling once. And we were fortunate enough to have that happen on that record. So what opportunities came your way? I'm not talking financial. But now you're sitting atop the charts. Do you suddenly start meeting your heroes? How does your life change? Yeah, slowly over time, uh, you start to cross paths with you know people that you've looked up to because of your success in the in the the circles that you're you know walking in. All of a sudden, um, that just starts to happen organically. I mean, it wasn't like all of a sudden all these people showed up at our door, but you know we'd bump into this guy at the studio or that guy. You know, or at a gig, somebody's backstage and they say hi. And then uh, it was just, you know, it, I'm still blown away that the people I've met, the heroes of mine that I've met that actually liked me and wanted to work with me. And I could never have dreamed that. Would You know, my life would unfold that way when I was in you know, Jacksonville. It was just like, it's beyond my wildest dreams. It really is.
Okay, so that record runs its course. How much pressure do you feel doing hard promises? Well, I didn't think about it that much. We're just making another record. You know, now we're now they, they like us, so we don't have to break through and prove that we're they think already think we're good. So now we we have that under our belt. But you want to, you know, the, from then on, every record you're trying to make better than that one. You know, even to the last record we made, you're always trying to make the best record you ever made. You're not going to do that. Nobody does. But you strive to do that. But it, we didn't struggle with pressure. You know, we were pretty confident that, you know, this may not be as good as Torpedoes, but it's good. And it's just this chapter. And maybe we'll make another record after and see what happens there. But we didn't, you know, we didn't agonize over it. My favorite song on that album, one of my favorite Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers songs, is A Woman in Love, It's Not Me. Can you tell me the story of that? I wrote the music. And... Uh, I had a demo and gave it to Tom. He wrote the words. And uh, I like that song a lot, too. It's, it's, it's a really uh, interesting character in that song. And Duck Dunn was in the studio that week, and he came in and played bass on it and really made it groove really nicely. And, uh, well, thank you. Yeah, I like that song, too. It's just another demo I gave Tom, and he, he was inspired to write a song to it, you know. So you go on tour. I remember seeing you with you were opening for Joe Walsh, which seemed a little strange. But uh, in any event, that album is not as commercially successful. You make long. I don't remember opening for Joe Walsh ever. I mean, after Torpedoes, we didn't open for anybody. Then maybe Joe Walsh opened for you. Yeah, we never opened for Joe Walsh. But but seriously, after actually before the third album, we made a decision. You know, we're not going to open for anybody anymore. I'd rather play a smaller place where they all came to see us. And by Torpedoes, we were certainly on our headliner all the time. Well, then I must remember that upside down. So, yeah. so in any event, long after Dark comes out, and for me, of the initial run, that is the least satisfying record and not that commercially successful. Was that something you guys felt, or are you just making another record? Well, um, by that point, uh, it's, it's funny. When you get a producer and you get into a role and you make a few records, you just, sometimes by the third or fourth record, it starts to get a little less fresh, the energy between you, and you get a little stale creatively. And I think by that record, maybe Jimmy was being pulled in different directions and maybe we were kind of... Uh, uh, a little too familiar with our routine... And so the record, but you know, that's one thing. But the, th the other thing is, like you asked me before, where do these songs come from? Those are the songs that came up that year, you know? And is it Refugee or Here Comes My Girl or Woman in Love? No. They're still quality uh, songs, but the bar is really high now. And I agree with you. It's not one of my favorite records, although I like it, and there's some high points in there. But it's not as good as those other records you mentioned. Um but that's the way a career is, you know. Every record you make is not going to be better than the last one. I don't care who you are, you know. In fact, usually they get worse with a lot of artists. But uh, we felt that, you know, this one's not uh, as. But we're okay because we have a fan base and it's still doing pretty good. Maybe the next one will break through a big again. You know, just keep pushing forward. Well, Southern accents ends up becoming huge based primarily on Don't Come Around Here No More and the video on MTV. I mean, you guys are the opposite of what's normally being played at MTV at that particular point, which is a lot of English new wave. 
The song is mm-hmm. different from anything anybody's ever heard before. Do you think that track is going to go? Well, uh, you hope it will. Uh, but you never really know until it goes, you know. You keep your fingers crossed. Uh, you know, hit records are, have a lot to do with timing, too. The, the, the climate of the culture and what other records are out at the same time that you're competing with. So uh, we thought it was pretty catchy. Um, but, you know, you never really know. I think the song Southern Accents, it, um, that song is one of the best songs he ever wrote. Just as a song. Um, you know, don't come around here no more. There's a lot of bells and whistles on that record and the video. And back then it was you know, MTV was an, was an issue. You know, you had to make a cool video. And so it had that going for it. Um, and it was good to have Dave Stewart around for a little while. There's some new energy. Break us out of our routine a little bit. And the following album, the opening song is Jamming Me, which is certainly something that became a uh, staple, uh, certainly live. Bob Dylan yeah. is one of the co-writers. How does that happen? Yeah, I know. How lucky am I? I wasn't even there. You know, I had the music, gave it to Tom, and he had gone to see Bob at a hotel, local hotel for some reason or other, and he had my demo, and he played it for Bob, and they, they sat together and wrote the words. I wasn't even there. And he calls me up, and he goes, I think, you know, Bob and I wrote some words to your track. Oh, great. You know, let me hear it. You know, it was jamming me. So there I am. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. <laughs> How do you feel at the time about Tom saying he wants to cut a solo record? Well, I think it made sense because the band was a little stale. And we were kind of following into a, a, a boring energy. With the, We were bored with each other. We were bored with our way of making records. And <clears throat> I think it was healthy for everybody, whether the band liked it at the time or not. Uh, it never, it didn't I mean, I, it didn't affect me that much because he asked me to, to produce it with him anyway. So I was there just the same as usual. It's just the band wasn't there. But it might have been hard on them a little bit, but I think in the long run, it, it worked out good for everybody. Let's go back to the... And some great, great songs. Right. Yeah. Let's go back to the very beginning. It's Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, not the Heartbreakers. Yeah. How did you right. feel? How did it end up having his name atop and how did the rest of the band feel about that? Well, I can only speak for myself, but I've talked to them all, and they all kind of agree. Up until that point, it was all for one and one for all from Florida. You know, we were all on the same uh, pay grade and sharing everything because we didn't have much to share, you know. And then as it became uh, obvious that Tom was leading the group, writing most of the songs, seeing the songs, um, and it became obvious that the best way to present this this uh, act is Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers because it really was that's what it was and it was a little bit of an adjustment at first like okay well he's going to put his name on there but you know does he deserve it yeah are we all going to do well anyway yeah so we didn't spend much time worrying about it, it just seemed like a, a natural progression and I think the band like I said uh, they probably agree with me you'd have to ask them but my ego was not so strong that I felt threatened by it. You know, I thought, well, I'm just happy to be in this band. You know, I get to play guitar, I get to write songs. Uh, I don't really care whose name's up there as long as I get to do what I want to do, you know. So I never, I didn't have a, a competitive thing about it. I felt 
You know, it works if we're all still working together. We're still, you know, having success together. I'm fine with it. <laughs> and looking back on it, I think he deserved it. You know, he was he was carrying a lot of the weight. He was making a lot of decisions, uh, management decisions as well. He was leading the group, and he had the drive um, of leadership that I think he deserved to have his name in, on there. And when you played live, was it an even split? Uh, it was not. It was half and half. Half to Tom, half to the band. And I think that was fair. And at what point did that start or from the very beginning? Around Torpedoes, I think. It was Elliot Roberts was our co-manager at the time. And he came and said, look, guys, we need to make this fair. It's not fair to Tom. You know, he's carrying da-da-da. So here's how I think we should go forward. And everybody went, okay, fine. You know, book some gigs. Let's all make some money. <laughs> Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So how did you end up working with Don Henley? Well, uh, I've told that story many times. It was a demo I had, uh, music, and I played it for Tom and Jimmy as we were working on whatever record we were working on at the time. 
and it didn't really fit that album. So Tom said, no, I don't, I don't know if I hear anything. I said, okay, fine. I got other stuff. And then Jimmy called me and said, you know that track he played me, uh, Don Henley's looking for a, a, a song for his solo record. And I said, well, what's he looking for? A ballad or a rocker? And he says, an image maker. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, if, he, if you think that track's good. So he set up the meeting. I took it over and played it for Don on my little cassette. And he sat there like this. That's with your head down because we're no... He listened to the whole thing. He didn't tap his foot, didn't nod his head. Got to the end of the song and he goes, okay, uh, thanks. I'll talk to you later. I'll let you know. And I'm driving home and I, the phone rings and he goes, hey, it's Don. He goes, he said, I've just written the best song I've written in the last 20 years to your music. I said, oh, great. Okay, let me hear it, you know. So that's how it went. Okay, so you have the demo. How do you make the ultimate recording? Well, that was hard because the demo was so good. You know, my demos are good. And uh, it was on a four track and he wanted to change the key. So we had to go in the studio and recreate the demo, which is always just really hard. If you have a demo that's got some vibe and it was just loose and off the cuff, and you have to go back and try to recreate that magic that made it great in the first place, that was one of those that was really hard. But we did finally get it. But it took a lot of work. And that stinging guitar, was that also on the demo? Yeah. I had to relearn that because I on the demo... I had put the guitar on, you know, la da 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 about this here, how about that there, Didn't, you know, off the, off the top of my head. And then, of course, Don fell in love with those bits. So I had to go back in and relearn what I had done. It was really hard for me because, okay, this comes on on the one, two, three, and da-da-da. You know, I had to go back and learn all those little bits, um, <laughs> which uh, I did get it, but it took some, you know, it was some brain work. And in terms of working with other people, is the phone just ringing? Is it something that happens occasionally at the time? Or all of a sudden you have a couple of hits and people are ringing your phone off? No, it was occasional. Um, you know, I would get a note sometimes through the office that so-and-so was, was interested. And if it was somebody I liked, I'd say, okay. If not, I'd go, never mind. I'm busy. Not as much as you might think, you know. Uh, it wasn't ringing off the hook. But occasionally I'd get an interesting call here and there. The other song, of course, it's legendary with uh, Henley, is Heart of the Matter. What's the story there? Heart of the Matter. I got up one morning, I was half asleep, and I just went, uh, and that's all I had out of a dream or something. And I thought, well, maybe I'll make a demo out of that, you know, and I threw it together. It's very simple music, really. It's so magical. They just come. That was a little thing. A little, out of that, grew into that. He heard it. He took it into another level. And I remember going to the forum years later to see Don Henley solo. And they did that song. I'm sitting out in the audience. They did that song. And he had a full-on chorus singing the backgrounds. And it was like a religious experience. It's like God smiled on me, you know. And uh, I don't know. I almost hate to talk about the mystery of songwriting because I don't want to jinx it. But I think it is, a lot of it's just luck and timing and turning your brain off enough to let that little light shine in for a second. I don't know, man. You tell me and we'll both know. <laughs> no, I, I feel the same way But in my work. But in any event, uh, do you play the guitar every day? I do. A lot. 
Every and day. are you just leaving the uh, re- you know recording all the time, or are you waiting for those bolts of inspiration? How does it go down? You're holding up one of your portable digital recorder. Yeah, I uh, I am so addicted to writing, and I'm so like um, sensitive to the little the little fairy dust that might come and might slip away that I have uh, little recorders handy. So if I do get a little piece of something, I immediately record it so I don't forget it. It's funny, I and I don't really agree with what Roy Orbison said, but I asked him once, uh, and there's some be- something beautiful about what he said. I said, when you're writing songs, do you record the, the rough ideas so you don't forget them? And he goes, oh, no, I never do that. And he goes, because I figure if, if I can't remember it, nobody else would have ever remembered it either. <laughs> But I don't really agree with that because I found little bits and pieces that I did forget about that were good. And are you a good judge of your own material? Yeah. I mean, not always in the moment. In the moment, you go with the muse and you just hope that it will shine on you with something great. And you always feel like, this is the best thing I ever did. And the next day you come back and listen to it and go, eh, it's okay, you know. Or, or else you go, oh, no, it's a kink song. I didn't even notice it, you know. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, uh, but yeah, once I sit back and listen, I'm, I'm a pretty good editor of bullshit, yeah. My own bullshit. And so now, now you're working with Jeff Lynn. To what degree, what do you learn from Jeff Lynn that you don't know already? Oh, so much. Especially uh, a recording technique. Um, and... Uh, just so much I can't even hardly explain it Uh, the way he records is very fast and very um, um, efficient you know we come in with a song uh, on the guitar like they had this song uh, that's all there was to it and Jeff took that and built this whole record out of those two chords you know, and he did it with background vocals. I learned so much about background vocals. I learned so much about arrangement. And he plays a lot of the bass himself. He's really good on the bass at making the track move just right. And uh, he always has an idea. And I learned quickly on the Full Moon Fever record with Jeff around. One, one day he came in and we had started a track the afternoon before. And he came in, because a lot of times with guitars, I'll make it up on the moment. You know, I'll say, okay, we'll run the track and I'll, I'll find something. Jeff doesn't work like that. Jeff works a part out in his head before he gets to the studio. So he came in, he goes, so Mike, do you have uh, any guitar ideas for this track? And I said, well, no. He said, well, I do. <laughs> and, he, and so he said, how about this? And it was just this great part, you know. And I'm thinking, so the next time he asked me, I said, oh, yeah, I've got some ideas. You're not going to do that to me again, you know. You got to... So, you know, he was like that. He was just so full of great ideas. And he made it fun. He, it was so, you know, we'd cut those records like Free Falling. It started at noon. By 5 o'clock, it was done. Background vocals, guitar parts, finished. Because he knew how to get things done really quickly and how to put everything in rhythm and grooving and the sounds and the microphone placements and the parts. And he would coach Tom on how to sing certain lines. And then his background vocal trip, it's just a whole other thing. I won't get into it. No, but well, no, no. Get, in, get so into it. What is it? Well, at the time, nowadays you can do it digitally, but at the time, you know, Jeff Flynn, if you listen to his records, he has a lot of the, these big background parts that sound amazing. And uh, he showed us how to do it. And uh, 
Of course, even if I tell you how to do it, you won't right. be able to do it because it's the way he, right. way he does it. But basically, at the time we were on analog, we didn't have digital. And we had a 24-track machine and then a little you know, mix-down tape machine. And so we'd start this song and he'd hear all the background parts. So say we've got, out of the 24 tracks, we've got five or six of the acoustic guitars and a drum beat or whatever, the basic format and live vo lead vocal. Okay, we're going to do the background parts. So he would find a n one note in the harmony and he and Tom would go out and sing it together in unison. Okay, double that. Okay, triple that. So you've got three tracks, six voices singing the one note. Okay, now we're going to do the next note in the chord. Same thing. So by the time you've got a you know three three or four note chorus, it's really like 20 voices coming in sounding rich as hell. But it's all sped across the 24 tracks, so there's no more room for the music. So what you do is you take all those voices only, blend them, because he knew how to blend them, that they would end up right, copy that down to the two track. It's stereo. Okay? Then go back to your master 24 track and bring up two tracks and put the two track in play and push the multi-track and record and try to time it right. Boom! Right really? there. Okay, there the chorus comes in. All. So then... And because it's on, it's, cause it's on a, a metronome, every chorus is is going to be on beat. So you run up to the next chorus, drop these 20 voices. So each time the chorus come by on stereo tracks, you've got you know 20 voices in perfect tune and perfectly blended. So all of a sudden, your little 24 track sounds huge, you know. That was one trick. But there's, and there's just so many more. I mean, just he was just brilliant. It's like going to college working with that guy. I, I really love and respect him so much. So... That record is cut, the Full Moon Fever record, long before it comes out. So what's it like when you have something like that and it's sitting in the can? Do you detach or are you just eager? Wait, wait, wait till this record comes out. Well, you know, it's like you were asking before, do you ever know if it's a hit? You know, we had I Won't Back Down, Love is a Long Road, Free Fallen, and whatever else was on that record. Lots of hits on there. And we thought it was pretty good, you know, because we, the three of us, just the three of us basically did it in my bedroom. And then we took it over to MCA and played it for them. And, well, they went over and played it for them. And they came back, they were all depressed. They go, oh, man, they didn't like it. They don't think there's any hits on here. They said, go back and cut a hit and, and then come play it for us. And we were demoralized, like, well, I guess we're just, we don't, we're clueless. We don't know what a hit is, you know. So, okay, they want a hit, so we'll do a bird song. That was a hit. Feel a whole lot better, so we'll do a hit, you know. They want a hit. We don't know what a hit is, obviously. We put that on there. And then in the meantime... There was some Wilburys action, and the A&R department at MCA completely turned over. Everybody had left. There was a new group in there. So then we went back in with the same record and played it for them. This, this record is six, six, six hits deep, you know, and it's like a whole different gang, and they totally got it. So we're just sitting back, well, what the fuck do we know? You know, good. I hope, I hope it's a hit, you know, and of course it was. But that's a, that's that's the music business well, for you. I know, you know, you I know, know from inside that building, they hoped that record never came out because the deal was so rich. And then ultimately it came out, it was, you know, a gigantic hit, which was a surprise to them. Now, one thing that really blows my <laughs> that blows my mind blows yeah. my mind is Stan Lynch gets excised from the band, but he ends up working with Henley. And then you're working with Henley. You know, do you cross paths? You know, how does that all go down? 
It's just incestuous. I don't know. It's just, you know, paths cross. And I've since recently, I was uh, doing a tour with my band, The Dirty Knobs, and my drummer had a commitment. And I had Stan come back in and do uh, a month's worth of dates with me, and we reconnected. It was beautiful. I really missed playing with him. But, uh, yeah, he ended up working with Don. I worked with Don and da-da-da. I don't know. It's just L.A. music scene. You know, you cross paths and... Somebody says, you want to do this? Okay, let's try it. And then next thing you know, you're into it, you know. So the Greatest Hits album comes out. Whose idea is it to do something in the air? It had to be Tom. Because we did uh, Mary Jane's Last Dance, which is a new right. song. We did discuss, like, if we're going to put out a Greatest Hits, let's at least put a new song that might be a hit, a new hit, so that we're not just re regurgitating the old stuff. And Tom wrote that great song, you know, Mary Jane's Last Dance. And then we needed another one for the B-side. And he just, I think it was him. He said, let's just try that Thunderclap Newman song. Excuse me. And uh, we, rec we recorded those two songs for that album. And lo and behold, Mary Jane's Last Dance is one of our biggest songs. Okay, I mean, that's a... Lucky again. <laughs> He's phenomenal. I mean, the song is phenomenal. How much is the guitar part yours, or how much is that in the original demo he brought? On Mary Jane's Last Dance, it's kind of both of us. Uh, we both played that together. I think he had the first idea for it, and then I did my uh, arrangement of it. And I think at the end, we let Tom play a little uh, Chuck Berry-ish solo on it. I played the middle solo. It was a... Uh, I think he had the original idea of the riff, but it was kind of a group effort to make it sound the way that it did. And Stan played on that record. That was the last thing we did with him, I guess. So how did you feel when the centuries changed, Napster comes along, suddenly rock is no longer the dominant format? What was the, your perspective on all that? Well, it's the same as it is now. <clears throat> Who the fuck knows, you know? It's a crazy business. You know, I remember when the, uh, during the MTV days, there was a point there where video games became real popular. And like, video games are going to take over. There'll be no more rock and roll music. It's all about video games. That's when we did uh, the You Got Lucky video. He, he beats the, the, the video, the game machine to death because we were making a statement against all that. So, I don't know. Throughout the decades, the, the business just has morphed, you know? It's like, and now it's streaming and vinyl's coming back a little bit. Cassettes are coming back a little bit, but CDs are hanging in there. Uh, but they're streaming and who knows how you don't really get paid as you should on streaming. I'm not really deep into it, but um, I know that it's always changing, you know, and uh, I have no control over it. I'm just going to make the music and hope that somebody will pay me for it eventually <laughs> so you accept these changes because a lot of people of our age who were successful resisted these changes well what good does it do you to resist it you know you can't stop it the genie's out of the bottle you know uh i just look at it like that's going to be what it's going to be it'll probably change you know eight times more before i die but i'm just going to make the music you know and somebody will find a way to to put it out and i can always play live but there's no point agonizing over it. I mean, it's, it's a little f weird at first when it seemed like, well, nobody's buying records anymore. Nobody's buying CDs anymore. And it's all free on the internet. And that was like, that's kind of weird. But 
what can you do? You know, it's the Wild West. You just, you know, keep making your music and hope that the powers that be will find a, a channel for it, you know. Playing the Super Bowl, good or bad experience? It was a great experience. It was uh, it was bad for me because I, I, I had a, a mishap with my back. I was in so much pain, I pulled my lower back. I had to take like six Advil to get through the show. But it was very stressful, uh, but it was great. And it, what was great about for me too is it was on my birthday, as it turned out, and my all my kids were there. So dad was playing at the Super Bowl. You know, I'm up there with my Advil, like, oh, if I can get through here. But I was proud because my, my family was there, you know, cheering for me. And uh, it's, you know, the NFL, man, that's a big, that's a big monster. And it was a lot of people. But it was exciting. I, I actually enjoyed it. A lot of preparation, a lot of work. What was the preparation? Well, <clears throat> we had to learn the songs and uh, figure out the staging and this and that. And... Uh, you know, be at our best, and just you know, the NFL—they're just—they're just you know, slave drivers. You know, they had their rules we had to follow, and this and that. I don't want to go into it, but it was a lot of work, but it paid off, and it's over. You know, you do like weeks of work to get it to try to be this one moment. You get ninety million people around the world, and six minutes is over. Okay, well, there it was. <laughs> but I think it did as well. It raised our profile a little bit. You know, so. You have the final tour with Tom. You know, there's a lot of stuff written in retrospect. He was in pain. He was doing it for everybody else. Did you have any foreshadowing or this was just another tour in your particular mind? He was not doing it for everybody else. He was doing it for himself. He told me, you know, straight to my face, look, you know, I've got some issues and a little bit of pain. But, you know, throughout his whole career, he had this kind of pain or that kind of pain. And so I just thought, well, yeah, he's just dealing with some stuff. You're getting older. And he said, he said, but I'm going to do this tour if I have to sit in a wheelchair because I want to do it, you know? And so it's like, okay, if you're that gung-ho, I'm not going to question you. I'll be there for you. You know, let's do it. And so he wanted it. He wasn't doing it for anybody else but himself. And did he have a foreshadowing? I don't think so. It was a mishap. I, did, I just said, we had talked about what we're going to do next. We're going to do some more gigs, make another record put out the film we're live and just keep on going like we always did. Uh, so there was no foreshadowing that this was going to be the last you know, time we ever play. And the pain thing, I knew he was, you know, dealing with it and he had to take some painkillers, but he'd always had stuff throughout all the years, you know, his voice would go out and he had to take a steroid shot before the gig or this, or his hip was bothering or his knee was bothering. So to me, it was just like, Oh, well, it's just another aches and pains along the way, you know, that's the way that I, we all looked at it. How'd you find out that he was rushed to the hospital? I got the phone call uh, from his daughter at like four in the morning. And uh, I was shocked and, you know, and stunned. It's <laughs> the best word I can think of. I rushed down there, but he was already kind of on life support at that point. But I had a moment to just sit and talk to him. I don't know if he heard me or not. I think he probably did, but he didn't respond. It was just horrible, you know, and he should still be here except for a mishap, um, misjudgment of this, this, this medication or that medication. It was uh, a cloudy decision at some point that uh, worked against him or else he'd still be here, you know. So this all goes down shockingly and are you stunned and can't play guitar or you go back to your routine? How do you metabolize this terrible event? 
No, the music is always a place to go in good times or bad times. That It's a safe place. I can pick up the guitar and I can ease my pain or I can celebrate my joy, you know. So I certainly never stopped playing guitar and never even once questioned that I wouldn't keep on making music. But, you know, it's something like that. <clears throat> I'm still grieving. I'll be grieving the rest of my life, you know. Uh, uh, that's how big it was. But I, I can't just quit. You know, I've got to have my music. i got to carry on. And I think that's probably what he would do if it was the other way around. <clears throat> so, uh, no. I You know, I, I had a couple of days of cloudiness, but then I just pick up the guitar and soothe my soul, you know, like I always do. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So how did the Fleetwood Mac thing come together? Out of the blue, uh, I was planning on just getting ready to record my album with the Dirty Knobs, and we were going to record it and, you know, do what we're doing now. And I got a phone call, I think it was on my birthday again, and uh, Mick called me and said uh, that Lindsay's left the band and 
would you like to join, you know? And uh, I said, give me 24 hours to think about it because it was a big decision. <clears throat> I thought they wanted to make a record, and you know, but it turns out they had a bunch of tour uh, requirements. Which So I signed on for that. I thought it over, and uh, I have nothing but the greatest respect for Lindsay, and it was a little awkward for me to learn someone else's guitar parts, but those songs really do require those parts that need to be played. I did the best I could, and I think I honored them well. And, of course, I'm not him. I did it my own way, but I did it as close to, to the songs I thought it, I could get it. And it was a great tour. And uh, my wife went with me. We saw the world in a year and a half, and the, fortunately, the, the knobs waited for me. They were courageous enough to let me have this moment, and uh, it was, you know... The Fleetwood Mac treated me really good, you know, in all ways. And it was a lot of fun. And uh, now it's over. You know, it's, I guess it's something that happened in the past. So weird how time does that. So when Mick gets a hold of you, is Deal Finn already in? No. No, they were, we were, they asked me, and then we were throwing, we were having uh, sessions to talk about who could we get, you know, and who would be a good singer and, um, turns out Mick knew Neil and I was in Hawaii rehearsing with them and so we called him in he, he came up from New Zealand and he and I got along great <laughs> and he was a great um, fill-in you know he did a great job it was a tough spot to stand there and sing those songs harder than me for to have to play the guitar parts but um, he did great and I, I love the guy so what was the difference if any being on the stage with Fleetwood Mac as opposed to Petty well, I wasn't playing my own songs. That was awkward for me to not play songs I wrote or that I was involved with the records. It was new uh, to me to be up there and playing, you know, their songs. Although they did let me do uh, Oh Well. I got to sing that one, which was really fun. I got to sing in the arena for the first time. Not much singing on that song, but still I got to do it. And uh, th aside from that, it was, you know, business as usual. You know, they, they travel first class. With, we had the private plane, as the Heartbreakers did, and all the nice hotels and big gigs and, you know, great crew. And it was just kind of like walking off this stage onto that stage, except I'm playing their songs instead of mine, you know. And the audience is similar or more passive, more enthusiastic? No, they're pretty similar. I mean, they love Stevie. <laughs> Whenever time she would walk out, they would go crazy, you know. Uh, you know, a big crowd like that, it's just such a big mob of noise. You know, it, it all, I never thought about it being different. It just seemed like they're, they're digging it. They're loud. Same as usual. So how did you end up working with Stevie to begin with on Belladonna? Was that an Iovine connection? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Iovine, uh, had, we had the song Stop Dragging My Heart Around, which I had written with Tom, that for some reason, Jimmy heard it as a, uh, a duet, which I think he was right. It's a great duet song, and he was doing Stevie's record, so he convinced Tom to let her have that song without asking me, although I would have agreed with it, you know. But, uh, and it, you know, and so I got to know her through that, and we, you know, over the years, we've written some songs, and uh, we have a great relationship. I love her. And so the tour ends. You ever hear from Mick or any of those people again? Yeah, I, I occasionally we talk uh, now and then. I'm not you know, lately in a while. I haven't talked to Neil in a long time, but occasionally I'll get a text, you know, here and there from Mick saying, "Hey, how you doing? I'm in Hawaii," and you know, da da da. 
But I don't really know. I mean, we left the Fleetwood Mac project. We had a meeting and decided that we would take a quite a long break to rest because it was a long tour and, uh, you know, it was a little hard on Christine and John who were having a little minor medical issues to do all that traveling. So the idea was to just, you know, I didn't break up officially, but it was like, let's just take a hiatus and let everybody rest. And if Stevie wanted to do her own tour and give her a couple of years to do that and everybody take a couple of years because by then we're all a lot older even. And so that's kind of how it was left. I kind of doubt that, uh, that that'll... If it does stir up, that it will include me, but I, it might be an might be a ship that's already sailed. I don't know. It's not up to me. Okay, so that brings us to the dirty knobs. So, to what degree were you inspired to record, make records, because Tom had passed, or would you have done that anyway? Well, I think I would have done it anyway because it's a uh, it's a way for a musician to grow. You know, if you always play with the same five guys, it can get stale no matter how good they are. And uh, I started recording in the studio with these guys uh, for fun. And then we liked it, so we went out and started playing a few bars to try out new songs. And I found I really liked it. I liked being in front of the band. And I, I liked doing my own songs. And I realized that Tom, there's no way Tom was going to be able to write to all of them because I write so too much. And he was overwhelmed with it, you know. So I figured if I, unless I do these songs, you're just going to end up in a, on a shelf somewhere. So I might as well just do them and see what I can do with them. And so I started to enjoy doing that. And then when Tom passed, I figured, well, this is what I want to do. My own songs with my own band and start over at the bottom and work my way up as far as I can. So how did you collect the members of the Dirty Knobs? Well, I just met them. Uh, I didn't... I didn't search for a band. They were just guys that knew friends of mine that would come over to the studio and we'd record for fun. And it just sort of evolved into we like playing together. And it became a band very organically. It was not an audition or a search. It just They just appeared. <laughs> and do you have a studio attached to the house? I do. I'm in it right now. It's where uh, I record records here. I've done a lot of Heartbreaker stuff here over the years. It's a great studio and I love it. It's my man cave. How extensive is it? Well, it's uh, it's just big enough for a four-piece band. There's a control room with, you know, state-of-the-art gear. There's a drum room. There's a medium-sized drum room. And then there's a lounge where I'm in now, which has a piano and room for guitar amps. And the great thing about my studio is because I've learned over the years how to get a good sound. My sound is, is all up. It's ready to go. All I got to do is push a button and the drums are on. Push a button, the bass is on. I don't have to move mics around or try this room or that room. And so I don't have to worry about the sounds. I know they sound good, and I can just go in and start work on the music. You know, and so it's really nice. Does anybody else work there other than you? Uh, well, no. It's mostly just for me. I've done a, I did a Marty Stewart uh, record here. Occasionally I'll have someone over and I'll work with them. But mostly it's my own songs and my own band. And it's all Pro Tools? I do have Pro Tools as well as Analog, but the Analog has become so cumbersome that I mostly work on the Pro Tools now. The Pro Tools has advanced to the point, you know when I convinced myself that I was okay with Pro Tools is when Jeff Lynn signed off on it. Because <laughs> <laughs> when it first came out, it was a little dodgy sounding and you could put it, you could definitely hear Analog, put them side by side and you could definitely hear it. Now they've got the converters really good and you and like Jeff was saying, you could blindfold me. I I could probably tell, but it'd be really, really hard. So I don't think he even bothers with the tape anymore. 
And tape is hard to get now, and it's just, like I said, it's cumbersome, and the Pro Tools is instant recall. And So, yeah, I work on that. Occasionally, we'll mix on the analog just to get some glue, but even that's kind of redundant nowadays. And are you computer savvy? You can run all this stuff pretty well yourself? No, I'm not computer savvy, but I know enough. I, I treat my Pro Tools like a tape machine, you know, and I have my Neve console, and I know where all the inputs are, and I've got the sounds up. And I don't, if the Pro Tools breaks, I'm lost. You know, I know just enough to hit record and play and solo a track or move this over there, you know. Um, but I try to look at it like a tape recorder, you know. That's where I just, like I would if it was an analog machine, I kind of visualize it that way and, and that's how I use it. But I don't get into the bells and whistles or details. I'm not that savvy. So how many times did the Dirty Knobs play out live before this latest push? Well, we used to play quite a lot. I mean, on the breaks of the Heartbreakers, you know, we'd play, you know, for a couple of months, you might play four or five, six gigs here and there. And then I'd do a tour with the band. I'd come back and then we'd throw a few gigs together. You know, quite a bit over, you know, we've been about 20 years or so, really, that we've known each other. So we're pretty we're pretty much a, a, a seasoned band. It's not like a thrown-together new thing. And how did Klaus Vorman end up doing the cover of the first album? Well, uh, my wife's assistant is a German lady. Her name is Alex. And she used to work for him over in Germany. And she, we were doing the cover, and she said, well, you should check with Klaus. I said, is he still around? Does he still work? She said, yeah. So on her recommendation, we contacted him. I never spoke to him personally, but the office, I told him I wanted to train you know, and a, with a with a cross bars and, da, 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 and a guy on with a hat blowing off his head or whatever, and he did the whole thing himself. But I was tickled to have Klaus Vorman's name on there, <laughs> and he did a good job. And how did you end up working with George Draculius? Well, I worked with George uh, through Rick Rubin on some of the Heartbreakers records, and he always just impressed me with his energy and his know-how. But, and he's such a great vibe. And he was my first choice. I knew I needed a producer. I didn't want to produce it myself. I needed a perspective. And George was a perfect guy to, to bounce things off of. So that was George's main role, to be a sounding board? Or what else did George add? Well, he did everything. Mostly he put everybody in a good mood and made everybody play to their best of their ability. But he was also helpful with arrangements. And he was uh, really helpful with me because I had too many songs. And he helped me zero in on, well, you know, this these these 15 songs sound like, you know, the band would be all on one record. Maybe these you could use later or something. They're in a different vibe. So he helped me zero in on what would make a good band record, you know, where everything fit together as a package. And uh, he's really good with uh, getting the tracks done quick. We didn't spend much time tracking. He puts everybody in a great mood and he's like a cheerleader. But he's really smart, too. If something's off, he'll zero in on it and go, we got to fix that, you know. But he's invaluable. I wouldn't want to make a record without him. So you make the first record, and then COVID hits. So how did, right. that, how did that mess up your plans? Completely. <laughs> like everybody else in the world. Yeah, we were all set to go, and then we had to just uh, pull back and held the record back, you know, as long as we could. And everybody had to rethink their lives, you know. We kind of, I stayed off the road. You know, I stayed home for the first year. I didn't want to go outside at all. <laughs> but 
but I used that time to write and uh, this and that. And, you know, things are starting to open up a little bit. It was scary, though. You know, plus, at the, at the beginning, everybody was dying, you know. It was like, it was a death sentence. And once we got the vaccine, then you could at least figure, well, if I get it, at least I can get over it. You know, I'm not going to be in a corpse. But uh, it was scary for everybody, you know. But we got through it. We just waited, you know, patiently, and then put it out when we could. I have a great record company, BMG. They were very good with just waiting and being supportive and sticking with us through all that. And have you gotten COVID? I did. I got it. My wife and I got it about five months ago now. And uh, I had the vaccine. It was not bad for me at all. I mean, some people have had it, you know. I felt like I had a cold or maybe a mild flu. I've had flus that were worse. It lasted about a day and a half. And then my nose was a little clogged up. And then I got over it. You know, it was it was kind of great to get over it because like, okay, I don't have to worry about that. Right, you know, right. I might, get, I might get it again, but I've already had it. So it's not that fear, you know. Do you know how you got it? I don't know. Uh, I have no idea. Uh, it could have been from... I'm trying to think. I don't remember... I know we were hanging out with the grandkids who had been going to school, but they didn't get it at that time. I, I, they could have passed it on to us. But although we were wearing masks and being careful, I really don't know. It's just, I think it was just in the air. I, a lot of people get it and they don't know where they got it. You know, It's just uh, it's swimming around out there, so watch out. <laughs> and now it's monkeypox. Don't get the monkeypox. Oh, that's for sure. So uh, you make the first record, COVID comes along. How do you decide to make a second record before you've even been out really to promote the first record? Because I had the songs and I love recording. You know, I've got enough songs for two more albums. I can't wait. On this December, I'm going to record the, another album. You know, uh, when the songs are there, you want to put them on tape. And then uh, as soon as it's a record, you know, if, if, if the record company can find a window to stick you in there, there you go. But I'll make them whether they put them out or not. You know, I just love do, I love the process. Okay, so if one listens to your records, they are great rock records in a world where rock does not have that much presence. How do you feel about that? I kind of wear that as a badge of honor, you know? I mean, I all through my career, you know, there's been like, you know, uh, you know, all the boy bands that come along and or the hip-hop and all that stuff, and rock is dead, it's over, it's all about, you know, rap or whatever, and then that would die out. And rock is just always kind of still kind of bubbling under the surface. And uh, I I wear it as a badge of honor that we're a rock and roll band, it's a, and a boogie, boogie rock and roll band with good songs. And that's what I grew up on, and I think at this age, I can represent that music really truthfully you know i hear a lot of young bands trying to play rock and roll and it's just it's not they don't they don't understand the feel i do i go uh, you listen stuff. to the record you hear that immediately either of the record well that's that's why we're offering you know if that's what you like that's what we are if you don't like it then you can go listen to harry styles i love harry styles but it's got nothing to do with with my my music and my direction but I'm honest to what I am, you know, and I, I, I know, I know from being on tour that a lot of people out there still love that kind of music, and they love to hear it from, I think I'm pretty close uh, to the true source of, say, Chuck Berry or whatever, or Muddy Waters or whoever, or even the 60s bands. I can get inside that because I was there. It's part of my DNA, 
And so I feel I can I can share this with people if that's what they want to hear. Come to me, I'll give you the real thing, you know. And do you listen to new music or just pretty I try. Much- I try, you know, but I always get I'm I don't know, man. You know, it's uh, I grew up Beach Boys, the Beatles, the Stones, the Zombies, the Kinks, the Animals, you know, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, Michael Bloomfield. I grew up around all that music, you know, and so I hear a new band. Uh, it might be on the on the in the car driving, and I'll, I'll hear, oh, that's kind of catchy. I like that, you know. And then I'll get home and I'll tell my wife, oh, I heard this 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 cool song, by and she goes, well, how did it go? And I go, oh, well, it had a good drum sound uh, <laughs> back in the day. Back in the day, if I'm driving home and I hear you really got me or satisfaction, by the time I get home, I can sing it to you, you know? The song, I mean, it's just because I'm old and I'm an old geezer, but those songs to me are better. They're memorable. You hear them one time. Nowadays, it's all production and sounds and, and grooves and, you know, I don't know. Just I can't grab onto it. I try. I keep trying to find a new band. But none of them. I always go back. I'd rather. I'd rather hear the animals, you know, the, or the yard birds. <laughs> That's the stuff that I like to, you know, better. So I go back and listen to old records. I guess I'm just doomed that way. Okay, and you know, we had this whole COVID interruption. But as you've gotten older, do you find you stay home, or do you still go out? I'm talking about not when you're working, when you're home in LA. Right. No, I, we've opened up a little bit. We went out to a restaurant the other day, and I wore my mask and took it off when I was eating. And uh, I don't go to concerts or clubs, but I don't, I don't think I'd go anyway unless there's somebody I really wanted to see, which there usually isn't. I don't. Uh, I don't know. I'm kind of a homebody anyway. So in a lot of ways, the COVID wasn't that hard for me because I st- oh I got to stay home and work in my studio and play with my dogs. Okay, I, I I'm fine with that. You know. I don't need the roar of the crowd to, to feel good inside. So, but I'm not afraid to go out uh, to a store or to the restaurant or, you know, I'm not afraid of it anymore like I used to be. But I'm cautious, you know, I want to be, I, got, I have gigs to do. I don't want to screw up my gigs, so I'd be careful. So what are the uh, preparations and rules you use on the uh, gigs so that people don't get infected? Well, the, I leave that, a lot of that up to the to the clubs and the promoters. They have their own protocols for the audience. You know, some places require a test. Some places suggest a mask. Our our crew at this point have all uh, pretty well had it and are over it, but we still wear masks. And, but we're not, you know, hardcore. You don't come near me unless you show me your test. You know, we kind of, it's kind of on a, a, uh, honor system around my band and according to the you know the promoter's rules well like with Chris Stapleton when we were opening for him he had a, a protocol every Thursday everybody gets a test you know and that's which is fine we did that and then he ended up getting it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so God bless him he got over it uh, but uh, it's awkward because nobody really knows uh, are these I mean, is this really keeping me safe? Is this mask really keeping me? Would I get it anyway? I'll take my chances and wear it just to be safe. But, you know, I don't really know, you know. So that's the way I look at it. Honor system and just common sense. And uh, I keep in mind all the times on touring, like, you know, I've got a lot of gigs booked and I've got these gigs coming up opening for The Who. 
And I don't want to screw that up, you know, so I'm going to be real careful so that I'm healthy and my band is healthy so that we don't have to cancel the gig, you know. How'd you get the gig opening for The Who? And do you know those guys? I don't know them. It's it's my it's my luck, man. I don't know. Like Fleetwood Mac, The Who, stuff, Tom, these songs. I, I feel sometimes I feel like I'm the most blessed guy in the universe. It dropped in our lap. We started this tour. We're playing little bars and we're moving up to theaters. Like we're moved up to the Fillmore. We can play there now. Uh, headline and maybe the will turn here. So we're starting to get a little bit up above the CD bars into theaters. And then one day I just got the call like, there's an opening slot here. Are you interested? I said, am I interested? <laughs> Sign me up, man. I want to stand on the side of the stage and watch Pete Townsend play. You know, absolutely. We'll play on before them. And it's, we're the only other band. So we're second on the bill and they're being really nice to us. I don't know how we got that gig. Just, you know, a gift from God. I don't know, man. And how do you know Stapleton? Uh, he called me. I had uh, uh, seen. I had met him briefly once when the Heartbreakers were playing Wrigley Field, and he was opening. And he walked by and said, "Hi, Mike." Yeah. And so, as it turns out, now I'm going to be playing Wrigley Field opening for him. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. But uh, he called me up on a break and said, oh, "He's writing some songs. Would you like to try and write?" And I don't usually do that because I'm right alone. And he came over and we spent a couple of days and we wrote some songs together and we became friends. And so he he was so cute. He goes like, well, and he knew I was putting out a record. I had got him to sing on one song and he's a big fan of mine. Uh, and uh, he says, you know, I don't want, I don't mean any disrespect, but I've got some, some gigs coming up and if you want to be on the bill, I could put you on the tour opening. And I said, sure, I'll take it. So, you know, he was really kind to give me those slots. And, you know, Stapleton is like the great white hope in Nashville, which is certainly pretty white. Have you uh, been invested or checked out the Nashville scene or not? Any takes on what's going on there? Well, I think he is the cream of the crop. Him and Margot Price, who I've also gotten to know, I love both of them. I think Chris is got one of those Roy Orbison-type voices where it's just a gift. And I've, you know, playing these gigs with him, I watch him. He just stands there. He doesn't run around. He doesn't wave his arms. He just opens up his mouth and people are enthralled. He's got a gift of a voice and a good soul. He comes from a very soulful, believable uh, personality. And so does Margot. Uh, I'm aware of, through them, uh, I'm aware of a little bit of the country stuff. I don't like modern country, rock and roll, poppy country. You know, once again... If I want to hear country music, I'm going to go listen to George Jones or Tammy Wynette or Patsy Cline. You know, Margot Price, I would put her in there. Uh, but uh, I don't know of any other new artists that that impressed me as much as Chris. I think he's head and shoulders above most of them. But I don't listen that much. I, you know, I have I have Sirius Radio. I have Tom Petty Radio. And I have Deep Tracted. And I have uh, Outlaw Country. So I, I check those from time to time. And if somebody looks interesting, I'll click on it. But I don't follow country music per se, but I do prefer the older stuff. Okay, what's it like, as Todd Rundgren put it, going back to the bars? Well, it's it's wonderful. It is an ego check for me. Um, you know, I'm flying on commercial flights in the airports. I'm not on the private plane. You know, I'm driving in a van. I don't have a limo. I don't have all those the trappings. But 
I love the small rooms. Musically, I just, and I love seeing the people. And I drive up, and it's it's my name, my band on there, you know, and I'm really proud. And I'm really proud, too, that it's growing, you know. We, we're playing some smaller places this year, but we're already getting offers for some festivals coming up later, and like I said, the Fillmore and the Wiltern and some theaters. So my, my goal is to get move up through the bars to the theaters, and I, I can see it's going to happen. In the meantime... Uh, I love it. You know, I, I the music is so much better in, in a room of 400 to 800 people. Everybody's in on it. I can see their faces and I'm, I can interact with the crowd. When you get into the big thing, it's like this big sea of, of there's a crowd out there. It's just a big sea of, you know, of collage of people. When you're in the club, they're right there and you can really, you know, tune in with them and they can feel the music. You can feel them back. So going back to the bars is is really fun, you know, as long as I know I'm not going to be stuck there the rest of my life because I am a little spoiled, you know. And I want the guys, I want the guys to to, to move up and get, and get a taste of it, you know, and make some money, which would be nice. It'd make me happy to see them make some money. And to what degree are you finding that these audiences know the material or just coming because you're Mike Campbell? A lot. I see a lot of people singing along to, uh, you know, some of the tracks on the album that I wouldn't think that they would know those words. But, uh, you know, and there's a lot of people that know who I am from the Heartbreakers. And I do occasionally do a Heartbreakers song here and there. And especially when I had Stan on the drums, we did some Heartbreakers songs here and there. And it was really emotional and people loved it. But they love our music too, you know. They sing along and they're, they're it's... it's I'm so grateful that they they they're so excited, you know, and their their eyes are so full of joy, and I feel like you know I have a best job in the world. Okay, one of my favorite stories is I'm in Minneapolis and Def Leppard and Brian Adams are on a baseball tour, baseball stadium tour, minor league parks, and they switch openers. And this particular day, Brian Adams is the opener, so he's playing when it's when there's still sunlight out. And mm -hmm. he's playing along, I'm on the side of the stage, and he turns around to the rest of the band, holds up the set list, rips it in half, and mm -hmm. then I see him literally win over the audience in the time that's yeah. left. To yeah. what degree do you feel that need, and to what degree, I mean, when you're with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, the audience is already convinced. Right, right, right. I like the challenge, and uh, it's interesting you would mention that, because on some of these gigs with Chris Stapleton and some of the uh, the sheds where they have the lawn and the seats. Right. Uh, I, was pre I remember when the Heartbreakers used to play those, I used to feel so sorry for the opening ass because there'd be nobody there. And I'd go, oh, I feel so, ba so bad for them, you know. And I was ready for that when we started doing these opening shows. But, you know, believe it or not, a lot of people showed up early. And I don't know why, maybe as a country artist, artist, uh, bring people in earlier. I don't know. Or they came to see me, some of them. I don't know. But we were blessed with pretty good audiences. But I love the challenge of winning them over. Um, and uh, I call attention to the fact, you know, I, uh, a lot of those shows, I'll start with Running Down a Dream. I'll go, hi, I'm Mike Campbell. We're the Dirty Knobs. We sound like this. Here's an old song. And so I think I can see them kind of going, oh, wait a minute. I think that's the guy who was in that band. I think that's the guy that does that song. You know, he's doing it now. And then we do some of our songs, and then uh, we have—I have a version of "Refugee" that I do. That's like a waltz, 
that's a, a Irish waltz feel. So the words are real upfront and powerful. And I get, and the audience sings along, you know, and I end the song. I go, and I start saying, don't have to live like a refugee. And I walk away from the mic and they keep singing. And I end with them singing the last line all by themselves. And I say, good night. And I love winning them over, you know, and it's a challenge, but I found I can do it. You know, I'm really kind of learning how to tune into them and pull them in with by saying the right things at the right time and the right song at the right time and confidence. You know, I've got my confidence now that I can walk out to a crowd that some of them may not know who I am and convince them to like me, you know. <laughs> and to what degree do the set lists change? Well, if it's a dirty knob, some of the places we play are our gigs, and I change it quite a bit, you know. Uh, on the Chris Stapleton stuff, <coughs> especially when Margaret Price was out, she would come out in the middle of our set and do the song State of Mind, which she sang on our record with us. So I've only got five songs, so I kind of keep it, and I change one or two songs here and there, but I kind of keep it to what works because I'm the opening act, you know, and I don't want to just go start going deep track. I'm trying to win these people over, you know, in five songs. So I give them a Heartbreaker song and some of ours and then close with a Heartbreaker song. So I keep that pretty well set. But with my band, we always change the setup. We got a lot of songs and lots of covers. And, you know, I have a, you know, a handful of Heartbreaker songs I can throw in now and then for fun. And I love doing those. Most of the ones that I wrote, you know. And so, um, and I, it's interesting. I, I found that our the Dirty Knob songs hold up really well in these gigs alongside the, the big songs. So that's encouraging. And uh, yeah, I, and one of the criticisms I had of the Heartbreakers is that we'd get this, our show, we'd not vary that much. But I, so I like to change the set. You know, I like to surprise the band so they don't know what song's coming next. Or sometimes I'll just call an audible. I'll go, forget that song on the, on the list. We're going to play this one. And they'll go like, oh. but then you've got them. You know, you got them tuned in, you know. How, how hard are you willing to work? How hard am I willing to work? Like, I'm you know, in the I'm, old days, okay. you start out, you play 250 dates a year. I'm sure you don't want to oh. play 250 dates. No, I'm down. I'm working. I'm out there. I tell you, you book a gig, I'll be there. You know, I want I want these records to get heard. I want people to know that we're here. And I'm still young enough to do it, you know, barely. But I want to work. You know, I think we might go to Europe next year. No, I'm, I'm, I'm down. And my wife and I now travel together, so that's easier. And she's into it. And we want to go out and... Uh, really enjoy this part of our life you know and i want to work hard you know i have a i know this guy who was led zeppelin's photographer back in the film days and he said i've been around the world multiple times and i've seen nothing are you the type mm. of guy who takes advantage or you just go from the hotel room to the hall well um it depends on how much time if, if i got a day off we try to find something to do the great thing about the fleetwood mac tour is there are several days off and you might be in Belgium or you might be in Sydney or you might be in uh, Dublin and you got a day or two off, you know, and we would go out and do stuff, you know, we would go to museums or go uh, take a train ride and go shopping or go out to different restaurants or go out and see the, you know, architecture. Um, I like to get out if there's time and I've had, as long as I get enough rest and get out and, 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 and take it all in, you know. But I know what he means. A lot of Heartbreakers tours, you know, we went through the city and I didn't even see anything. You know, I saw the hotel and the and the car and the stage. But uh, no, I like to I like to take up the culture of wherever I am. We just played uh, the the knobs played up in Napa Valley, 
at this beautiful old theater called uh, Uptown Theater. It's great old proscenium hall. And we were driving through the town. I was wishing we'd have had more days off because it was a beautiful little town. You know, really parks and, and lakes and cool buildings and shopping. But we didn't have time to take it all in. But generally, yeah, we want to we wanna, you know, experience everything. Okay, you've done a great description of the live act and enticing people to go. If For those people who are going to start with the records, tell them how they should get started. Well, buy them <laughs> and listen to them. I don't, I don't know what you mean. I mean, there's two well, records. Well, you know, there's two albums. We live in an era where people have streaming and yeah. there's, you know, you can pick and choose the tracks. Certainly uh, Spotify will tell you what's most played and then they have the albums. Are there one or two songs people say, start here? No. I wouldn't do that. I would just say, just just dig in and, and, and if you like it, listen to it. You know, if you don't like it, skip to the next one. I don't know. It's up to them. But I think all the stuff, all all the songs and all the albums are, are indicative of the of the Dirty Knobs and they're, you know, they're all good in their own way, you know. And Ian Hunter is on one of the tracks. How did that happen? Yeah. Well, you that- can start with that one. It's a dirty job. Uh, that's a good one. Uh that was he, that was another thing fell on my lap. I never met the guy, but he was gracious enough to to sing. He sent me a couple of tracks that he was working on, which are great, by the way. I put wait, some wait, guitars. Wait. And, Start at the very beginning. How did you make contact? He called the office and asked if I would be interested in overdubbing some guitar and some new songs. And of course, I said yes. I'm a huge fan of Mata Hoopla. They he they sent the in the mail came over these tracks and I put them up in my session, put my guitars on and sent them back to him, and he loved it. Well, actually, he sent one. He liked it so much he sent me another song, and then I was getting a little brave and I said, "Well, would you consider maybe singing one of our songs?" I didn't think he would, but he said, "Sure." So I sent him over the song "Dirty Job," and he sang a verse and put some piano on it. And I can't wait to meet him and thank him in person. But uh, yeah, that's a good place to start. If you like Mata Hoople, go for that song. And when you're on stage, it's a different perception than when you're in the audience. And you know when you're great. And you know when you're off a little bit, even though the audience may still enjoy it. What are one or two gigs that you've played, whether it be with the Knobs, Fleetwood Mac, or Tom Pettigoat, that really stand out in your brain? Well, um, Madison Square Garden with the Heartbreakers, a couple of times there, I was very spiritual. Royal Albert Hall, I've always loved playing there. It just has an ambiance to it. The Hollywood Bowl, you know what's ironic about the Hollywood Bowl is that's the last show I played with Tom. And I remember leaving thinking, oh, I'll never be back here again. And I'm going back to open for The Who at the Hollywood Bowl. It's our last show together. So uh, that's a great place to play. Uh, those are the first ones that popped to my mind. Uh, yeah. And how about the opposite? A couple of gigs that you've been to. That that I liked? Yeah. Uh, other bands? You yes. Mean? Oh. Uh, <clears throat> well, I saw Led Zeppelin back in the, the Atlanta Pop Festival in whenever that was, when I, uh, in 68. That was impressive. I've seen the Beach Boys back in the day a few times, and they always blew me away. Um, Neil Young, I've seen him a couple of times out here in uh, L.A. from time to time. He's always great. Um, Those are the first things that popped in my mind. 
Well, Mike, I want to thank you for taking the time. This has just been riveting. I could talk to you for days. Thanks for being so forthcoming. Thank you. I'm I'm a very grateful person, and I have a right to be. You know. Well, thank you for your time. I, you, wrote, you asked some good questions, and uh, I hope I didn't go off on too many tangents, but I think it was good. No, you know, digression is a spice of life, and I feel lucky that I've been able to have this conversation with you. Till next time, this is Bob Left Set. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.